This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Amy Lewis. She's president of the Wild Foundation, which is based in Boulder, Colorado. So welcome, Amy. It's great to be talking with you. I understand that uh, you have a background in communications uh, and have come into the Wild Foundation uh, as executive director. So uh, why don't you just tell us about the Wild Foundation? Uh, what what attracted you to, to join it uh, back in, in 2015? And uh, what are you doing today? Yeah, so it's an honor to be here, Jay. I really appreciate the invitation. And and um, just to clarify, I have a background in social movement building, both as a practitioner and as a scholar. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. No worries. So uh, Wild Foundation, I understand, has a four-star rating from Charity Navigator. Uh, that's pretty prestigious. Uh, how do you get that? Uh, well... I think it's by having our priorities in the right place. Uh-huh. Uh, so we're a very small team with large ambitions. Uh, we carry out community-led conservation programs around the world from West Africa to the Western Amazon. Uh-huh. Um, but our kind of bread and butter and what our real focus is, is addressing the root causes of um, the environmental decline and the loss of wilderness Uh which isn't an ecological problem. It's a social problem. Uh And so we're working with international institutions, building support and a global coalition to help keep earth wild and leveraging and mobilizing that coalition um, for important policy actions at the United Nations and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and every now and again um, for national level uh, policies as well. Do you prioritize uh, wildlands over wildlife, or do you give them equal uh, representation? Well, it's a holistic um, system, right? And and I think if you address one part of the system, you're addressing the other part of the system. Uh, I care very deeply about wildlife, and the fact is that wildlife thrives when it has a home. Over 80% of the habitat loss and the biodiversity loss that we're confronting globally is driven by legal activities and the legal destruction of uh, ecosystems. And so we're really addressed at that level. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't mean that we won't work through keystone species. Certainly our work with the um, Yawanawa indigenous community in the Western Amazon Part of what attracts us there is that um, their territory, their sovereign territory, has one of the highest concentrations of black jaguars. We're also looking at um, becoming more deeply involved with uh, the Lakota Treaty Councils because we're interested in the restoration of bison. Uh, That being said, we understand the problem as we cannot create sustainable change and meaningful change for wildlife if we don't protect those spaces that they need to thrive. Mm -hmm. So uh, what does the organization 
uh, state as its purpose? Well, our our primary purpose is to um, identify and build leadership and coalitions uh-huh. for the protection of wildlife and wild nature, and um, specifically for wilderness. What's interesting about this is in the U.S., we have a very robust wilderness concept. It's been around for a long time. We have the the Wilderness Act in the 1960s. We have a policy framework around which to designate wilderness. But a lot of other countries don't even have a word for wilderness, let alone a policy framework. So our work with the World Wilderness Congress, which began, by the way, in South Africa, um, our work with the World Wilderness Congress is really spreading that wilderness message and building out that wilderness concept. And if I if I may, wilderness is often a besieged concept. There have been things that have been done in the name of wilderness that have been quite awful. Uh, mm. People have been removed from the land. And um, I think that that is part of the larger... Um, work of imperialism, um, but it was done in the name of wilderness. One of the reasons why I am a strong believer in wilderness, besides the challenges, is it's the word that my civilization uses to describe nature in which we meet nature not as something to exploit or extract from, but we meet nature on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And there isn't really another concept like that in our language. So wilderness as a concept is really important because it defines a relationship with nature as equals, not one in which nature is merely a a place we go to to take things from. You work on three continents, Africa, uh, South America, and and Asia. Uh, What are are those... uh, what are the what are the countries in those continents? Uh, what do they understand as wilderness? Is there a difference? So, um, for example, we had two World Wilderness Congresses, and the and the World Wilderness Congress isn't just a place where people meet to talk about wilderness. Mm-hmm. It's a place where people come together to discover their shared values and mm-hmm. the actions that they can take together to uh-huh. promote those those values. And um, so the World Wilderness Congress in Mexico and the World Wilderness Congress in Spain both had a similar challenge in that um, the Spanish language doesn't have really a word for wilderness. They have some terms, Uh um, but there there isn't really a, a word and there wasn't a policy framework for wilderness in either of those countries. In Mexico, there still isn't a policy framework. There are people who support a policy framework for wilderness there, but they don't have an official one. Uh-huh. Um, so it was kind of identifying how, how we're going to create this concept of wilderness in those language, that language in Spanish. And what's interesting is in Spain, they chose a different term than they did in Mexico. So in Spain, they chose the term tierra salvaje, um, like the savage land. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in Mexico, they uh, they chose the term tierra silvestres, like the the forested land. Uh-huh. Um, so um, so it's it's interesting to see how each culture comes to 
their how how they're going to describe what we know as wilderness. Mm-hmm. Same thing in China. In China, there wasn't the the closest approximation in China for wilderness was a term about um, basically a place being remote and undomesticated. That's mm-hmm. what the symbols were in Mandarin. Um, and there was a lot of dialogue in China about whether that should be the term or whether the term should re- re- refer not just to the remoteness of wilderness, mm-hmm. but also to something, a uniquely Chinese concept, something in the human spirit about being um, undomesticated and untamed. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was a very is a very interesting discussion um, to see how when we try to describe our relationship with nature um, in equal terms, how oftentimes it involves exploring um, both assumptions in our society as well as our own psychology. You work with partners. Uh, talk about that. You have partners. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um I would say that Wild is best at being a force multiplier. There's a lot of people, good people out there doing good work. Um, the challenge is, is that we as individuals, both as people and as organizations, can't address a systemic problem on our own. There's no institution out there, no matter how powerful they are, that can alone address the climate tr- crisis or the biodiversity crisis. And so we need more investment of time, energy, and resources in the space of pulling people together across institutions and across cultures to identify what the priorities are and to take those actions in a coordinated way. Um, We see oftentimes the breakdown in climate talks and climate treaties is the unwillingness to um, work together on what has been identified as the necessary actions. So um, WILD is very much working in that space to remove the obstacles to agreement around some of the most ambitious questions in conservation. For example, one of those questions is um, nature needs half, which is the scientific consensus. Just as with the climate crisis, we have a target that's 1.5 degrees, which is the scientific consensus. The political consensus is two degrees. The scientific consensus is 1.5. Same thing with biodiversity. We have a scientific consensus about what the target is. It's at least half of the planet that we have to keep in a wild and intact state in order for the ecological services we receive to continue to function in the way that we need. Um, right now, the political target is 30%, but uh-huh. 30% isn't the end goal. It has to be half, at least. And in some ecosystems that are really fragile, like the rainforest, we're really talking about 80%. Uh-huh. So uh, you you have uh, coalitions with other parties, is that right? Yes. And, and what are those? Are those uh, in? Are those staff members who are located on in the various locations in China or South America or Africa, or are they? Are do you have staff members there, or do you just have uh, coalition partners? We have staff members and we have partners who we fund um, to carry out projects that 
our shared priorities. Mm -hmm. um, so that's our on the ground work. But our um, our policy work, we have coalitions of partners that are not paid, uh, but that are working together to achieve policy goals at the United Nations and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Yeah. For example, the 1.5 degree target in, in the climate talks didn't just happen because the scientists said that's what was needed. There's lots of political resistance to it. And it required thousands of organizations coming together in a coordinated fashion to promote that in order for that target to become part of at least the public agenda, if not the institutional agenda. Same thing with Nature Needs Half. We're working with dozens of groups around the world um, to uh, facilitate coordinated actions and messaging and campaigning around putting half on the agenda. Hmm. So you, uh, you sponsored the first World Wilderness Congress in 1977 in South Africa, and you've been sponsoring them annually since that time, uh, or at least nine, nine of them in various locations like Australia, Scotland, Colorado, Norway, India, South Africa, Mexico, Spain, as you mentioned. So the world, the 12th World Congress will be held in the Black Hills this coming August. Uh, talk, talk about that, uh, because it's co-hosted by the uh, Sinkanja Lakota Treaty Council. Yeah, so the um, World Wilderness Congress takes place approximately every four years. Uh -huh. um, and we uh, have a special relationship with the IUCN through the um, World Commission on Protected Areas and the Wilderness Specialist Group uh, to take the resolutions that are passed from civil society at the World Wilderness Congress and promote those at the IUCN and use them as technical notes and whatnot in various IUCN policies. And um, so, so, but the World Wilderness Congress, unlike the IUCN and the UN, you don't have to be a member. You don't have to be a government. You don't have to be a dues-paying member to join. Anybody can be a delegate at the World Wilderness Congress. So it's really a chance for civil society, for business, for academia, um, indigenous groups, the arts, to influence the creation, the formation of the global conservation agenda. Um, the next one, the 12th World Wilderness Congress, will be held on the sacred uh, lands of the Shichangu Lakota Treaty Council, um, and that will be in the Black Hills. And uh, this Congress will largely be oriented around the integration of um, indigenous wisdom and lifeways as they're relevant to conservation uh, in mainstream conservation. So, um, little known fact, 80% of the biodiversity that remains on the planet is stewarded by indigenous peoples. Approximately 40% of the wildlands that remain aren't stewarded by indigenous peoples. This mm -hmm. despite the fact that indigenous groups make up less than 5% of the global population um, and oftentimes are very under-resourced. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we are working at highlighting this fact and also looking at ways that we can empower groups who are culturally besieged right now, um, besieged by illegal logging and mining, besieged by legal activities that are being um, permitted by national governments, 
um, on how we can work with Indigenous conservationists to strengthen them, strengthen mm. the land tenure as it relates, again, to conservation objectives, and um, really bring in traditional culture and traditional wisdom at the core of Western conservation. Who will be participating in this uh, uh, in this uh, World Wilderness Congress? Uh, will they will they be coming uh, from all over the world? Yeah, I mean, really, anybody who wants to participate, um, we've identified several sponsors: Esri, the World Commission on Protected Areas from the IUCN, um, uh, the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Research Institute. Uh, we have. Uh, uh, leadership councils from the Western Amazon who will be attending. We're working with the International Indigenous Forum on Biodiversity in order to bring leaders um, from their group from around the world to participate. Uh, we're talking with Sami leaders um, in Scandinavia so that they'll be participating, First Nations in Canada, uh, but also non-Native groups uh, large, uh, large NGOs to small NGOs, um, artists, business leaders. Uh, we're hoping to have a couple of folks from the World Bank and IMF talking about um, funding for biodiversity credits for nature, things like that. Uh, so it's it's really um, it's 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 really going to be as are all Congresses uh, cross section of society that's there, which really helps um, tear down some of the institutional barriers, the silos that we um, stick ourselves in, in order to generate that cross-sector uh, cross uh, conversations that are needed in order to develop powerful coalitions. How many people will be attending this Congress? Typically, with Congresses, it's 1,500 to 2,000. Wow. I'm anticipating um, that number for this one, maybe a, a little bit more, as I think a lot of tribal nations uh, mm -hmm. from North America will be attending that maybe mm -hmm. don't typically attend. Mm -hmm. So you're engaged in some uh, different field projects. Uh, one of them is called the Mali uh, Elephant Project. But tell me a little bit about that. Right. The Mali Elephant Project uh, really kind of its inception began around 2003. And um, a local leader who was the son of a chief and has a degree in economics noticed that there were more cattle in the elephant range than there'd ever been. But oh, yeah. simultaneously, the people who lived there were also poorer than they'd ever been. Oh. So it's kind of a paradox. Um, and because, I mean, if there's more cattle, the people should be richer. And simultaneously, because the, the, the area was being, um, overranched, that there wasn't enough, uh, water and forage for the elephant. So the elephant herd was being threatened. Uh -huh. And what was discovered, and this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it's more or less true. What was discovered at that time is that, um, a lot of the herds, that were there were not herds from the local people. They were herds from people who lived outside the area in urban areas, but were using that territory for their own prestige herds because there was no regulation, there was no enforcement. Truly a tragedy of the commons. And so um, Wild's field team there 
And this is a, a project that we run in partnership with the International Conservation Fund of Canada. Wild's field team uh, basically pulled together for the first time a council of elders across eight ethnic groups. And through that council of elders, they established um, patrols with the youth and those patrols are paid. Uh, I think we have over a thousand patrol people, about 10% of those, a little under 10% are women. And they're patrolling the elephant range. And, and that council of elders has established essentially the regulations for how that land is to be used. And if somebody is going to come in and bring an outside herd, they will be charged for that. So it's reducing the impact of um, cattle ranching. And we saw after this was implemented, we saw the, the waters begin to restore in the area. Of course, since then, there's been a couple of uprisings and insurgencies. Now, ISIS is a big problem there. And so we're dealing with terrorism and poaching as a result. Uh, but that um, uh, that's the Mali Elephant Project in a nutshell. So that sounds uh, uh, pretty challenging uh, to move forward with this. Or do you feel that you're you have a stable situation or uh, are there problems ahead? Uh, I mean, Mali has become a pretty unpredictable climate politically. Uh, there was recently a military coup, although the government continues to be strong supporters of the project. They see elephants as a national unifying symbol for Mali. Mm -hmm. And they recognize the importance of protecting this territory. As a result, though, of the political situation in the country, um, there are funding challenges as one of the largest funders of the Mali Elephant Project was the European Union. But under their regulations, they really can't fund um, a project in such a, a politically unstable area. There are elephants in other countries of Africa. Are you... Are you considering expanding your project into other areas? Mali's unique. This is the last herd of de desert elephants in the region. Oh. North and West Africa used to have many herds of desert elephants, and they're all gone except for this herd. So if we're not there to protect this herd, it's very likely that elephants will be extirpated entirely from the region. Hmm. Uh, and also, Mali is unique because of the relationship some of the local communities have with elephants. They believe in this concept called baracha, which is a kind of blessing that's conferred by different animal species. And they believe that the baracha of the elephants is that it they make the land fit for humans to live in. And mm. if the elephants aren't there, the land is no longer fit for humans to be there. And so because of that, that cultural tradition, we're able to leverage that in some challenging climates in order to, to have communities um, really support and have strong communal political will to continue to work with the elephants. Uh, you also uh, have this project in, South, in Brazil with the Oanala people. Uh, tell me a little more about that. 
Yes. So, um, the Yawanawa currently occupy 187,000 hectares of relatively pristine rainforest. Mm -hmm. Their original territory was millions of hectares. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they've had to fight. They've gone from basically zero hectares in the last 40 years to 187,000 hectares, which were finally officially designated um, by the Brazilian government last August, August, September, last September, Mm -hmm. Uh, this September, I should say, 2023. So and that 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 took decades for them to achieve. Um, The Oanoa are living a pretty traditional lifestyle because of that their civilization is place-based it they like almost all of their resources come from the forest and from the river that runs through the middle of their territory and so they understand in an extremely intimate way that their survival depends on their ability to sustain and maintain those resources Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, they have a strong, strong spirituality that derives from the forest. And for them, the forest itself is a spirit that they mm-hmm. um, interact with. So um, so it's really been, I mean, Brazil's challenging. It was more challenging a year ago under a different president and administration we have a friendly political environment right now. So our goal is in the next three and a half years, three years um, to establish as many um, powerful interventions that empower the Yawanawa to defend their territory and um, to monitor the biodiversity within it uh, before uh, there's potentially another political change. Prior to, prior to this administration, the last president of Brazil had declared war on indigenous peoples and the rainforest and was not enforcing many of Brazil's excellent laws around the protection of both indigenous cultures and um, the forest. So so we're working at building um, the institutional relationships between the Yawanawa and national law enforcement. Um, as well as some local interventions uh, to uh, give capacitate them to to really keep their territory sovereign and to keep the rainforest intact. You were also involved in establishing uh, an area of binational conservation interest uh, on the Texas-Mexico border, uh, uh, consisting of what ten million acres. Uh, how has that been affected by the border wall? Well, and that was Wild. Wild was doing that. Um, I, it was part of the um, process leading up, I believe, to the Ninth World Wilderness Congress in Mexico, and it was also done in partnership with WCS um, and with several other conservation groups, as well as the collaboration of the Department of Interior, obviously. So, um, so th- that's another way where we're working with a lot of different partners. But yeah, yeah, walls and fences aren't great for ecology. Mm-hmm. And what's we think about a map, and there's all of these lines on a map, but all of those those lines are essentially imaginary. They have real consequences because mm-hmm. we've imagined these lines and these distinct countries. We enforce them. We manifest those lines, 
And so they have real consequences, both on the lives of people, as well as on um, wildlife Mm -hmm. and ecology. But um, there are migrations that don't happen when the wall is there. And some of these migrations aren't even purely terrestrial there's you know there's there's flying there's insects that um have that i've i've been there's a a great documentary i forget the name of it but um there are there are pollinator species that don't fly as high as the wall Mm -hmm. and so you can't cross um so there's 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 a lot of 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 challenges with um breaking apart ecosystems that way i we are just about out of time for this session but uh i have a lot more to ask you so uh hang on and uh we'll we'll do another half hour for next week so our guest today has been amy lewis president of the wild foundation an international organization seeking to preserve the earth's wilderness based in boulder colorado this has been wilderness and wildlife a presentation of the gallatin wildlife association in bozeman montana To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features for our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.